This morning, as we continue our sermon series going through the Gospel of Mark, we are in Mark chapter 10 this morning here. Uh, the, the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ upon this earth, and sometimes uh, his ministry that we have here in Mark was, has been uh, miracles, and, t- and other times it is teachings. And this morning we are in uh, one of the teachings here that, that he, yeah, he gave. Uh, but before we... We hear the, the word of God read as before uh, preaching begins. Let's, let's pray and let's ask God uh, to grant us the spirit here uh, so that we might hear better and be transformed. Lord God, uh, this is your word. Uh, we need to remember that this is your very word. The word that you have given us, the word that bears a faithful testimony to all of your acts uh, all of your character, your being, and as we read this morning to the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, we ask then for your spirit then to be moving forth with the word, to be moving forth with the words that, uh, that this man is preaching, that they would go past all of the, the barriers that we might put up, all of the shields that we might put up, and do its great work within us. Spirit, do your work within us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, this is uh, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. This is the word of God. And Jesus left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up and, in order to test him, asked Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. This is the word of God. Imagine you're driving in your car, maybe you're going to work, Uh, you are running errands and you're listening to news radio, and then you decide to turn it off. You decide to turn off the radio, change the channel. And it's probably due to either one of three reasons. The first is you probably don't find it very interesting, because it's it's news that isn't relevant to you. It's news from places that don't directly affect you. Uh, it doesn't have any bearing on your life. The second reason might be because you just disagree with it. Because you think the perspective of these people that they're talking about here on the news is wrong. And you don't want to listen. And then the third might be because it's painful to listen to. It's a subject that you find difficult to hear because of what you've gone through in the past. And it brings up memories of pain and it brings up hurts. And you might be approaching the sermon this morning in similar ways. 
Maybe it's not interesting to you because you don't find it particularly relevant to you. Maybe because you're not married, because maybe you have no intention of being married, perhaps because you're widowed. But the thing is, God's word is for everyone. It is profitable for teaching and instructing. And one of the things that we miss with having our written Bibles on our own is that, that this would have been first uh, spoken aloud, read aloud to the entire congregation together. It was assumed that's how it was done. And so everyone who was there in the congregation was expected to listen to it all, including for the married couples, the passages about singles, and also as well for the passages about the married people for the singles as well. But second, though, you might be approaching it this morning just saying, I disagree. These ideas about marriage and divorce, they're old-fashioned ideas. They don't really fit with society in the way it is today. And perhaps some of you feel that because of experiences that you have gone through. But I want us to listen, though, here to this morning about what God says about this subject. Because, after all, marriage is instituted by God, as we'll look at. But the third reason, or the third thing, that, way that you might be approaching the sermon this morning here is that it's painful to listen to. I know there are some of you here who have undergone divorce, or who have been touched by it in some way. And here we have a passage, a sermon like this this morning here, and it seems like it reopens all of these old wounds, and it tempts you to check out. And I'm asking you, no matter who you are this morning, I'm asking you whether you are happily married, whether you are single, whether you are divorced, whoever you are, not to turn off the radio, not to change the channel or check out. Because this isn't a sermon merely about divorce. This is a sermon about marriage also. Because whenever we consider marriage and divorce, though, we also, though, can't just stop there, but we need to consider the covenant God. Because at, at the heart of marriage is, a, is covenant. It is a promise. That's what the vows are. And at the center of it all, here's the God who instituted At the center of marriage is God who instituted it here. And God makes covenants. He is a covenant God. And marriage is centered on the covenant God who is most fully revealed to us in the person of Jesus. The very same Jesus who spoke to, uh, to the Pharisees and the disciples here about this very topic. And so as we learn about God's intents for the marital relationship, we also learn about Jesus. And so please don't check out this morning if it feels like your old wounds are being opened up again. Because in him, I want us to also see at the end of this that there is healing for those who have been hurt. Now to the text here, the Pharisees ask Jesus a question. They say, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And the reply that Jesus gives is, well, what did Moses command you? What does the law say? And they reply back, well, we can write a certificate of divorce to send a woman away. But Jesus, though, points them back to the, main, to the main issue. They says, you were asking the wrong question. You were asking, is it okay? But the real issue here, the real question is down to this. What's the permanence of marriage? What did God intend for when he gave marriage? See, the principle here, the overarching principle is marriage, and the exception is divorce. And you don't start with the exception and move from there to the foundation. You start with a principle as the foundation. Because that sets the expectations for the purpose. 
And it bears a particular relevance for us in a society here where marriage is dismissed, where it's looked at in skewed ways, or also in an era of no-fault divorce. It has great relevance for all of us here. And so what I want us to do this morning is to work backwards through this passage to first look at the idea that marriage is the principle. And then from there to go on to see that divorce is the exception. But third, I don't want us to just sit there. I want us to also look at hope. At the hope that God gives for those who have undergone the difficulties of divorce. And so first, marriage is the principle. Marriage is the principle. Jesus affirms this underlying uh, principle of marriage here that is set forth in the Old Testament in the creational accounts. He goes back and he, and he, he uh, quotes from Genesis 1 and 2. He grounds his arguments in the text here. The principles of marriage from the Old Testament here are also affirmed by Jesus. And that's an important thing for us to recognize. Because if you think that Jesus has different views on marriage uh, and divorce from the Old Testament, then you have some gymnastics to perform. Uh, Everything here, Jesus is quoting Genesis 1 and 2. And he's assuming the veracity of all of that. And he's assuming the validity of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, particularly in, in, in marriage here. And he's saying, well, no, if he's quoting from that, he's affirming all of it there. And so uh, it, if, if you want to say, well, no, Jesus actually has different views. then it means, though, implicitly, that you're saying that somehow he was wrong. And if Jesus is a son of God, do we, are you prepared then to say, make a statement like that? So Jesus begins with, with, at the beginning, Genesis 1 and 2, to set forth the underlying creational principles, and so will we this morning. And first here, he says, basically, marriage is instituted by God. Okay, marriage is instituted by God. And because Genesis 2, 24, as he's quoting here, it was the first marriage ceremony. That was also our Old Testament reading. All right, when God brings together man and woman, Adam and Eve, he is bring, this is the first wedding ceremony. And God is not only the, the man, the father, the happy father of the bride, walking the daughter Eve down to her husband, down to, to Adam, but he's also the marriage officiant as well as he brings them together. He brings them together and he blesses them. Marriage is instituted by God. It's foundational from God. He's the one who gets to define what it is. And Jesus affirms all of this here. All right, he affirms it not only by quoting from Genesis 2, but he also said in verse 9, well, God is joined together. Jesus is saying also, no, marriage is from God. He's the one who brings them together. God defines marriage. He defines what it involves. He defines its intense how it's to be entered, how it's to be lived, all of its purposes, they're given by God. Second, though, that we see here is that marriage is a union of differences. It's a union of differences because Jesus also quotes here from Genesis 1.27, which is when God first creates a man and woman, male and female, on the sixth day. It says, God made them male and female. That's what Jesus says there when he quotes. God made them male and female. God made two different people, man and woman, male and female. And that, that was done with the intent for them to be brought together. And the beauty of marriage is that the two of them are united together. The two different people, man and woman, brought together and united in marriage. 
And we can't miss the union part of this. We can't miss the fact that they are united. Because it's a very real bringing of, uh, of, of the two together. Right? When Jesus says they're there, they're to hold fast to one another. They are actually to, to leave their fathers and mothers. They're to leave their prior ways of life and to come together and form one flesh, a new union. All right? Leaving the old ways and being brought together, united together. And we have that pictured in the physical union of a husband and wife, but that's not everything. It's two lives who become one. It's two souls who are are knit together. It's a very real union. It's part of the beauty of marriage, of the two coming together into one. But third, though, also, marriage is a permanent union as well, which is also what Jesus says when he's quoting from Genesis 2, 24 there. God brings the two together in union, and that's intended to be a permanent union. All right, if you're bonding, if you're gluing two pieces of paper together, what's the intent? It's to be a lasting union, isn't it? A lasting bond, a permanent union. And ripping it apart, then, isn't the intention. It's the same with marriage. Jesus affirms this again when he says in verse 9, Let not man separate what God's brought together. And that's due for the next reason, the following reason, fourth, because marriage is a covenant union. At its heart, marriage is a covenant union. What is the most important foundation of marriage? What is it that sets the marital relationship apart from all other relationships? What is the essence of the marriage relationship? What is it that keeps a couple together? It's not love, actually, it's not children. It's not sex. It's not satisfaction. It's not any of these things, although they are byproducts from it. Ultimately, here, it is covenant. That's what sets the marital relationship apart from any other relationship. Covenant. Because the vows that are taken there at at, at the wedding ceremony, those are covenant vows. They're covenant promises. The rings that are exchanged there, those are signs of that covenant that's made. And covenants, promises, are meant to bind, to unite. And they're not meant to be broken. The essence of marriage is covenant. And covenant is rooted in a covenantal God. God is covenantal. God makes promises. He makes covenant relationships. Actually, at the very beginning, you know, from even before creation, God, did you know God made a covenant with himself within the three persons of the Trinity? He made a covenant, a promise within the Father and the Son and the Spirit for the redemption of his people. God made a covenant with Adam at, after creation here, a covenant for life upon obedience and death for disobedience. And then even after God or after Adam disobeyed, God made another covenant with his people after the fall to give them life out of their death. And God never reneges from his covenantal promises. He never pulls back from his covenantal nature. He relates through covenants. And marriage was given by the covenantal God. We are bearers of the image of God. We also, too, make covenants. We enter into these covenantal relationships. And so one of the questions of the day, though, is marriage, is, is marriage outdated? Is it necessary for us still today? Well, we got to say, what's God say? God has a say, and he says that it's intended for husbands and wives to flourish. 
And I hope we see that marriage in terms of this, in terms of this covenantal idea is beautiful. It's not repressive. Right? It's, 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 your, it's, it's, it's a, for one to uphold the other. Right? It's the, the, the covenantal basis here actually gives freedom to us. There's freedom within the bounds of vows that are taken. Husbands and wives can live with one another in freedom as they trust one another, as they, uh, as they live with one another with the freedom of their covenantal union. And so is it outdated? Well, no. It's the most fundamental social structure, the God-given social structure. Family life is built upon the marital union. All right, and when bricks, uh, when bricks uh, in the foundation crack, then what happens to the rest, ever, to everything that's built on top of it? It's unstable. And so God is concerned with the erosion of marriages because it leads to an erosion of society. But vice versa, God is concerned with the flourishing of marriages because it leads to a flourishing of society. God cares about marriages because he cares about the world. But one more underlying principle, though, here that we need to look at that's also foundational is that marriage is a picture of the union between Jesus Christ and the church. That was our, our New Testament reading that we had this morning. Right? Husbands, love your wives. Why? As Christ loved the church. And how does Christ love the church? Self-sacrificially. He gave himself up for her. The church can model Jesus' covenant love. Be a living apologetic through our marriages of, of, of Jesus' covenant love to our children, to the world. It's a way for others to see the beauty of Jesus more and more and in real tangible ways, ways that they can actually have categories for. Friends, do they see that? Do others see that? And this is a word especially for husbands because Paul does say, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Again, how does he do that? He loves, Christ loves his church self-sacrificially. See, marriage isn't about you or your self-satisfaction. It's about loving your wife as Christ Jesus has loved the church. Laying his life down. It means to give up your own self for the sake of another. It's about loving your wife as Christ loved the church. Holding nothing back. And it's not in response to how our wives treat us. Because how does the church treat Jesus we oftentimes are drawn away in our own unfaithfulness. Yet Jesus still loves, he still gives. Husbands, love your wives as Jesus loves the church. So we, if we have here, you know, the first point about, about the permanence of marriage being the, the foundation, we see, though, that divorce, though, second, divorce is the exception. And people were, the Pharisees were asking the, the wrong question. They say, is it lawful for a husband to, to divorce his wife? Well, they're focusing on the wrong idea. Again, they're focusing on the exception. They're missing the covenantal union part of this. And focusing on the exception is no way to form your, the formative ideas, the formative principles, the formative ethics. Uh, as, as a former junior high teacher, I used to get asked before test day all the time, Mr. Autry, how many questions can I get wrong on a test and still pass? Right. How many questions can I miss and still get a B? And it's always like, yeah, it's always the same kids who are asking it too. And it's like, you're asking the wrong question. Focus on how many you can actually get right. 
Study well for the tests. We can't just, we can't focus on the exception there. It says, what did, Jesus says, what did Moses command you? And they say, well, in verse 4, it said, write a certificate of divorce. Which they're quoting then from the, the law in, Je- in uh, Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. It's the only passage in the Old Testament law about divorce. But the thing is, it only regulated divorce. It never, it never, uh, never uh, condoned it. It only accepted it as a reality because that's the state of the, sinful, of, of, of the sinful human heart. And particularly what it does is it set forth post-divorce regulations. If a man wanted to divorce his wife, then he was to give her a certificate of divorce that said that she was free to go off and to remarry then. And so it wasn't a, a, a defense of divorce. There was no affirmation of it. It was simply a regulation. They regulated divorce with the intent to protect the woman. Because what could happen there is that a man could divorce his wife, but without that certificate could hold her hostage, and he could go off and do whatever he wanted, yet that woman would still be held under the bounds of that law. And so especially, though, since divorce here had, at that time also was taking on a, uh, something that, that, that mirrors our own no-fault divorce. Uh, it took on that sort of slant. And as it said actually in the text there, if a man divorced his wife due to, to what was, quote here, some indecency, all right, then he was to give her a certificate. And it's a bit dubious on, on the meaning of it. Uh, the, the, the Hebrew is very strange, but there's a wide ver- uh, array of interpretations that even the rabbis had during that time. You had some that were very conservative that said, well, it was only, only for sexual immorality. And again, that was still open to what that was. But then on the, on, on the other hand, it could be for, for, because she displeased me because I found her uh, dis- to be displeasing in my eyes, which could be anything. I kid you not, rabbis were saying this, anything from... She burned my dinner to, I saw another woman that I want instead. And so a man could divorce his wife for whatever reason that he wanted. And without that law or the certificate, he could entrap her and do her further wrong. And Jesus, though, indicts them for honing in on divorce, though, while missing the prime principle that was already laid out at the beginning, which is the permanence of marriage. He says, divorce was never the intent. You know what is? Permanence and covenant union. What did Moses command you? No, don't just go to Deuteronomy. What did Moses command you? Well, all right, the book, go, go to that, that first book of Moses, Genesis. Why don't you read the first couple chapters? All right, the only reason that it was given, he says, was because of the hardness of your own heart. All right, human stubbornness. And finding ways to pull yourselves out of your own covenantal unions. It was to regulate what you were going to do anyways. It was to protect your women from being victims. So your approach to both marriage and divorce are tied to one another. Your approach to divorce affects your approach to marriage. And your approach to marriage affects your approach to divorce. Because it represents the seriousness or the, the, the degree of seriousness to which you take marriage. Do you take it flippantly? Or do you emphasize self-giving covenantal union? I mean, consider the, the common clauses that we have in our traditional marital vows, right? To have and to hold into, in sickness and in health, for better or for worse, those are vows. That's covenantal vows. 
but it also represents how you relate to your spouse. What is the essence of marriage? It's covenantal union. Is marriage about your self-fulfillment? Then divorce becomes an option if you aren't happy. But at the same time, though, if is marriage is about covenant, is it about serving the other, then divorce doesn't come up because it doesn't matter if you're happy or not. Divorce is pulling apart the permanent union. That doesn't happen without damage, though. Right, those two pieces of paper that are glued to one another again. What happens when you pull them apart? It tears. Pieces are left with the other. And on the other hand, though, a spouse that's caring for the other is to care for the two of them in union. Caring for one is to care for the both, for, 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 for the union there. And so the question to ask in marriage isn't, what are the circumstances of divorce? But the more important question to ask is, how can my spouse thrive in our marriage? What can I do for his or her flourishing? And yet, though, still there's confusion that we have here in verses 11 and 12. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. They're not hard words to interpret, but they are hard words to hear. Why? Because of the permanency of the union. And there are questions that that some of us might have here. Are there legitimate grounds for for, for divorce? Is this black and white here? Well, I think it's important to see, for one thing, the parallel passage here of what Jesus is speaking in Matthew 19, verse 9. He says the same thing, but he adds one caveat here. He says that whoever divorces his wife and marries another, or divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another. So Jesus gives, gives there a ground for divorce for, for, for sexual immorality. And we also have in, in 1 Corinthians seven fifteen. there's another that the Apostle Paul writes about desertion. And so why are those allowable exceptions? It's because of this, because they are a ripping apart of the marriage covenant. It's a tearing it apart. And again, it's severing. It damages. We need to see that. But the question, though, is why are those not listed here? I mean, why doesn't Mark even mention here sexual immorality like, he, like, like Matthew does when he writes this down? Well, it's all in the matter of intent. The intent here that Mark is giving as he's recording this here isn't to delve into the exceptions right now and to lessen the point. The intent, rather, that he's giving is to emphasize the covenantal uh, permanence. It's what they, what they, what the, what the, the, the Pharisees, but also what the disciples needed to hear in that moment. And divorce causes deep wounds. Some of you know this. Admittedly, I don't. It damages severely even if that union is ripped apart. The deeper the wound, the more dreadful the scar. And these, admittedly, these might be some difficult words to hear if you have undergone divorce. But remember I said there's a third point. There's one more point that I want us to remember. And that's third here. God gives hope for those who are hurt by divorce. God gives hope for those who are hurt by divorce. Because this is it. God himself is, the, is a divorcee. God himself is a divorcee. God was rejected. God was separated, put in separation by his bride. 
Are you familiar with the book of Hosea? The book of Hosea, there God pictures himself as a loving husband, as a faithful husband to his bride, to his people, to Israel. And he has bound himself to them by covenant. He has, un- he has united himself to his people. But an unfaithful bride who goes after other lovers. Constantly and consistently rejecting and spurning and abandoning her husband God. And it uses some very harsh language. Even the language of prostitution. And why does he use this picture? Why does God use this picture? Because God is a covenantal God in a covenantal relationship with his people. A covenantal relationship that is imaged in the marriage covenant. And their unfaithfulness was an act worthy of spiritual divorce, repeatedly again and again and again. But yet he never abandons them. Despite her unfaithfulness, despite Israel's unfaithfulness, acting as if they were divorced from the covenant, he remained committed He even promises then in Hosea to woo her back, to draw her heart back to him. How can he abandon the people whom he has always loved, whom he has loved self-sacrificially as Christ loved the church? That's what led God to, to give him, to give his son over. He gave him over to cover sin and shame and to bring back And to reconcile his estranged people. And so here's the hope from all of this. There is hope for those who are divorced. Because he knows what it's like to be rejected and abandoned in your closest relationships. Because he's felt the same thing as his covenantal people left him for another. And so your cries don't go up to an uncaring or uncompassionate God. He knows. And he promises to give you comfort. He promises to wipe away all of your tears, all of your hurts. He promises to bring you into a deeper love than only marriage itself can picture. And also in your times of hurt, in your times of difficulty, and in your questioning, here's the thing, Jesus knows what it's like. And Jesus prays for you in your hurt and your pain with a perfect sympathy because he knows what it's like to be rejected. But there's also, though, at the same time, hope for those who have initiated divorce, for those who have willingly taken part in it. People, here's the thing, people divorce, people sin. But this is the beauty God reconciles. And even though we might feel dirty and ashamed because of the divorces that we've gone through before. Jesus is the one who woos us back. Jesus is the one who has gone to the cross to reconcile us to God for no matter what sin it is. And his perfect robes and his beautiful robes are that which covers over all of your shame. He woos his people back from unfaithfulness. He is not content to let them go and to, to, to let them remain in their guilt. But he covers over and he atones for all of the wrongs that you have ever done, no matter what it is. And his faithfulness continues to remain. See, Jesus is God's covenantal marital faithfulness in the flesh. 
the faithful God himself. He is the divine husband who loves his bride fiercely, who loves her self-sacrificially all the way to the point of death to forgive her sins and to take away all of her shame in deep love. He is the one who covenantally is covenantally faithful to restore the union that was broken. And when, when she wanders, when, her, when his people wanders, he brings her back and he embraces her in love. That's Jesus crucified for you to take away all of your sins. Jesus crucified for you to take away all of your shame. Jesus crucified and risen to restore and to make new Jesus crucified, risen, and ascended who seals a covenant with you that he will never break. And that, friends, is where you can find healing and where you can find comfort because you have a covenantly faithful God who will never break any of his promises from you. And he will hold you fast despite whatever other rejections that you might feel. We're about to come actually to a wedding dinner here, though. The table, the Lord's table that he sets out for us is a wedding dinner because it is an anticipation of the marriage supper of the Lamb that we see pictured in Revelation. It is a celebration of Jesus taking his church as his bride and extolling his covenantal faithfulness in this time because we take the bread and we take the cup. It's a sign of his faithfulness, his faithfulness to us that he will never leave us or forsaken us, and that we will someday, because of his cross, because of his body broken for us, because of his blood shed for our sins, that we will someday, in him, eat with him at that table, at that beautiful marriage table in eternity. Let's pray. Lord God, such beauty and such love that there is with Jesus Christ as the bridegroom who has given himself up for us self-sacrificially, who did not give us his, only himself, but continues to give us himself to us over and over and over as he has given us his spirit also and continues to lavish blessings upon us. Thank you for that. And we pray that in him, all of us would find healing especially those who have bare the deep wounds and questions of divorce. Spirit, we pray that you would penetrate these truths into that they would take root and blossom and flourish. That hope would, would flourish where it seems that there is only deadness and death before. Prepare our hearts as we come to the table. In Jesus' name, amen.